Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dead Cat. Tom Dotan here with Eric Newcomer. This week, we've got a real treat for the audience because we're taking a break. We're taking a break from the scandals and the layoffs and the onslaught of bad and just generally weird vibes going on in Silicon Valley. So I'm sure by the time this episode comes out, Sam Bankman-Fried will have done like a half dozen more inculpatory interviews. And Elon will have started and resolved a fight with I don't even know who, like Emmanuel Macron or something. Uh, (laughs) But instead, we are leaving that car crash behind. We are going to keep driving on 101 past Silicon Valley to the real valley and to the land where the vibes are probably chiller, but maybe even weirder at the moment. We're talking Hollywood, where leaders are being defenestrated, the costs are being slashed, chaos feels like it's raining. And to talk Hollywood, we've brought on one of my favorite people that I used to talk to when I covered the industry. We've got on here this episode, Paul Telegdi. First of all, Paul, welcome to the show. Welcome to Dead Cat. I hear this is your first podcast interview. Yes, I uh, take that on advisement. By the way, I love the name of your podcast. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Yes, Dead Cat. It is a very insidery. Oh, we all know, we all know what a Dead Cat bounce is. We can talk about that at a certain yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you may be seeing some of those happening around oh, yeah. you uh, down in Hollywood. Yeah. So, Paul, why don't we just get the full resume uh, for our audience so, so we can know who we're dealing with here? So, like many people, I was a sort of accidental entrant into the television industry through the, funny enough, the world of international television sales based in London. And that was a journey that started my relationship with content and content distribution. And that was, you know, selling shows around the world on behalf of producers that had retained the rights. And, you know, it was an interesting business back, let's just say, in the middle 90s, we were still using a telex machine, fax machines, and, you know, jumping on planes to go and see people and attending markets in a very traditional way. And on the day where you're in a small company, the IT guy has five jobs, but the IT guy came and installed this thing called email onto our machines. Huh. And Okay, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, that's what we're dealing with. And I remember the first email I sent and received a reply to, and I was like, oh, wow, this business is going to change mighty quickly. And I thought, well, the distribution mm-hmm. business is this place I understand is going to evolve. I need to get close to content creation and be a part of the process that sort of makes the treats that get sold around the world. And so I joined the BBC in 1998 in a job. I had no clue what the job was, to be honest. I just took any job at the BBC, whereas the, what was called a commercial manager of several programming units, which included the BBC's entertainment division that weirdly was responsible for like comedy and then shows like uh, what you would latterly know, like Strictly Come Dancing, which became Dancing with the Stars. So at the time at the BBC, my boss was this chap, Alan Yentov, who's a sort of legendary BBC kind of, I would call him a creative technocrat. And he was like, oh, there's a vacancy in LA. You should put on your Bombay bowler, which is sort of reference to like an East India Company executive, ironic uh, yeah. coming from uh, Alan, yeah, Alan sure. Yentob, an Iraqi Jew, was like, yeah. we need... To- the British can't stop colonizing. I get it. <laughs> but, but he sent me off to LA to colonize. And that I arrive at a desk. I mean, funnily enough, we were in the same building as TNT, Turner, this building called, which was known as the Dolts Building because there was this sort of nice family diner on the ground floor that was one of the few places you could eat. So I was in the ground floor of the Dolts Building and I arrived and the inbox still had the last occupant of the office's last lunch they'd eaten in a sort of unwrapped sandwich. And there was a key card on the desk 
and the words written on one card, good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I met my colleagues and then, you know what, I just sat down and started hitting the phones and talking to people and bridging the gap between the UK and the Los Angeles part of the business in what turned out to be an extremely and deeply meaningful way. But my boss at the time in London is like, no, we're coming. Okay, okay, we'll try and sell Dancing with the Stars. And that happened. And what was my connection with that? Well, I set up the meeting, went along and was mightily surprised when ABC ordered six episodes. I was even more surprised huh. when they agreed that we could be the producing studio. And I was like, holy shit, we're hiding in the Dolts building. All we've got is an inbox with an old sandwich in it. How are we going to become a fully fledged production studio overnight? So I called friends in the UK and we became fully fledged approved production studio for a reality show for ABC in 2005. At the time, would you have taken much more credit for Dancing with the Stars? Now you're being, you're sort of saying, uh, I didn't necessarily think it was a great Dude, idea. L- listen, if you ever get to work or be in the room of that level, look, there are lots of reasons it became successful that I will take complete credit for, but not the sale. But executing right. a show from a standing start with nobody to help and oh, getting yeah. all of that team together and then maintaining it, but also, let's just say, doing the right deal at ABC helped. But in a most profound way. But then I got a call to go and do more reality programming at NBC. And I arrived into what was like a sort of, you know, an organization that was, you've got to understand, I arrived two weeks after Lehman Brothers. No, when did I arrive? I think I arrived two weeks before Lehman Brothers collapsed. And we were owned by GE at the time. And I thought, oh my God, I've landed this cushy job at NBC. I'm going to get stock. I'm going to, wow, GE, massive global industrial company. This is a great place to be, dot, dot, dot. Cut to people that will remain nameless, but let's just say they were all called Jeff. But at a certain point, everyone what? in the company was yeah. called Jeff. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I'm in a room with a load of Jeffs after a town hall at the Gibson Amphitheater where we're told the world's about to end. Literally, from a financial point of view, one Jeff stood up and said, this ain't good. And then in front of the entire workforce, and then behind closed doors said something like, I'm not even sure we can make fucking payroll in two weeks. Okay, I'm like, oh, okay. And meanwhile, morale was in a kind of like, let's just say, off the back of the strike with, you know, I don't know, the Olympics in Beijing were kind of a highlight. That that organization was on its knees. It was, yeah. yeah. To anybody who watches 30 Rock, by the way, you can very closely trace this period of GE owning NBC to, you know, the convoy from Philadelphia in the form of Comcast coming well, in. Uh, uh, it sounded chaotic I, and, and bleak and hilarious. Well, look, I think that um, it started for me what I'd describe as a love-hate relationship with people that emanate from America's business schools. <laughs> because, yeah. uh, what am I meant to say? It's a load I, I don't know what words to say because it feels like, feels like graft everywhere. Yeah, well, there's plenty of that around here too. I feel a lot for the plight of anyone that's listed on the stock exchange. It just seems like it isn't really mm-hmm. good for the decisions that need to be made at companies. I think that's super exacerbated at companies that are in sectors that are going through rapid change. And that actually is a very neat time. Like, listen, my career, uh, after I did that, I then went on eventually to, you know, slowly grapple my way to the top of the pile and be a co-chairman first and then briefly chairman of NBC Entertainment. Now, when I started a career in television in the UK, 
got to understand the year that I started, there was no question that NBC was the number one network anywhere on the planet, like in 1990. Sure, Friends, Seinfeld, all of that. Friends, everything, everything. And so when you started a career in television, if you'd asked me, you're going to be chairman of NBC one day, well, well, that would be a result. Let's hope so. But as a Brit starting a business, rising, ascending to the chairmanship of NBC would have seemed unimaginable. And so lurching from quarter to quarter is what AG's ownership of NBC felt like. Well, I think Comcast right. then came in, Cable Town in your 30 Rock example, and there was a strange sense of calm that descended on the place. And that's the general vibe that tends to emanate from Comcast, right? They're all, you know, brotherly Philadelphia types that seem to be, at least from the outward facing side of it, very Well, friendly. do you know what? If I was a CEO like Bob Iger, I would want to own 40% of the voting stock of Disney. I don't think yeah. that might be a bit calm. Yeah. And I think that that's the yeah family companies work well, like no, that. that yeah. That's the thing is that I would imagine there are again. I'd be careful what they say. That I don't think I'm disparaging my former employees by saying there is a lot of head scratching around corporate governance on Wall Street around the voting stock of Comcast. Right. So, so Paul, if, if you don't mind me cutting in for for a second here, because because I, I I mean I do think in, you kind of mentioned you, you work your way to to the top of NBC. You know, you do end up getting pushed out, you know, as part of a reorganization yeah. and some other things that maybe maybe we can touch on for a little sure. bit later. But I do think, you know, in tracing the trajectory of your career, you kind of go from someone who just got his first email in the mid 90s into, you know, working at the top of this industry that was completely upended by technology yeah. and this direct to consumer relationship, like, a, a, you know, a full spectrum shift in, in the way that the business works which kind of brings us to today, yeah. where, like I said at the outset, it seems like things are more unhappy and more chaotic, in my opinion, than, than I've seen in certainly the years that I covered the industry. So, you know, from someone who now, you know, you run a production yeah. company, so you are, you are, you know, you're on the selling side of things rather than the yeah. buying side. What is the general ambient anxiety within Hollywood these days? Like, how are people feeling? Well, I think that if you talk to a lot of people, Look, the people that are at these companies, where your boss has said, oh, gosh, we're facing strong headwinds. Well, we all know what that fucking means. Look to your left, look to your right. One of you three's out of here. Yeah. And if you think about that on a system-wide basis and what kind of, look, let's just say all of us have a kind of survival animal. You see it in the mirror sometimes. You wake up and like, holy shit, pull yourself together. But let's just say the survival animal in most of Hollywood is engaged. Right down to, mm-hmm. when you can see, like, Bob, you use the word defenestration, and I, I love that word. Yeah. It's like, it's amazing how many people fall out of windows around the world, okay? But yeah. that sort of, you know, defenestrations, I can't imagine there aren't going to be some, a lot more. Why? Around the place. It's not, you know, it's funny how bosses are always, like, I remember how many times I've been given in my career a target without any names on it, which basically means, hey, could you go and ruin as many of these people's family lives, domestic situations, prospects of paying their mortgage? We need you to go and take a wrecking ball to this business or that business. Why? We're not making enough money. Well, that's your fucking fault, not the employees you hired, is what my attitude of, again, probably, probably one of the reasons why I'm not at these spaces anymore. <laughs> it's like, well, it's funny, like, look at your rhetoric as everything was going great for 10 years, like, bawling everywhere. Suddenly, like, people that have run these businesses. Okay, so let's, I mean, we, we kind of danced around it a little bit, but let's talk about the Disney situation, because for our listeners, there are a few that yeah. don't know. A couple of weeks ago, Disney's board 
in the middle of the night, basically, just threw the body of their CEO, Bob Chapek, into the <laughs> L.A. River and, and, and reinstated Bob Iger, who was the previous and incredibly successful kind of legendary CEO of Disney, who had handpicked Bob Chapek to be a successor. It was apparently some sort of a disaster. I'd be interested in your opinion on that. But yes. And so now he has two years, basically, to write this company whose stock has fallen substantially over the last couple of years and do the thing that he apparently couldn't do, which is find a successor. But yeah. Bob Iger had been the chairman of Disney, right? And then like relinquished that seemingly to not have sort of his hands on the decision of the board to pick the new CEO. As I was told, he was completely cut off from the board. He had moved on with his life. He was on his yacht, you know, going to French they don't Polynesia. Know anymore. You know, they were just, yeah. Uh, he anyway. Was, he, he, was a, he was an investor. He was in our and world. And then in so. the media, it's been presented like, oh, then they just called him up one day. It's like, hey, Bob, w- would you come back? You know, I don't, like they never talk. I don't know. It's hard in, to believe. A, a lot of questions. Well, yeah. but, but as someone who's been close to these decisions, Paul, what was your sense of it? Well, I, again, so... The reason for JPEG's departure seems mainly directly linked to the financial performance of Disney over his tenure. And you know what? It's funny because there were two CEOs that retired, let's say, spookily close to the start of the pandemic mm-hmm. in, in media. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, you know what? If I was going to take a two-year break on my yacht, and I owned and operated businesses in countries where, uh, uh, okay, I will say the following, Tom, if you'd have spoken to me at the end of 2019, based on what we knew, based on, let's say, construction projects around the world, uh, contacts in the Middle Kingdom, we knew mm-hmm. that there was a very serious pandemic coming in 2020. Why? Well, parts of our business were already being shut down by lockdowns in China. And... I remember the playbook starting to come out. And I'm just going to say that I was told in January 2020 that this pandemic was going to last about two and a half years based on the current scientific thinking. And uh, Uh most of our core operating businesses would be fundamentally frozen for the better part of two years. Did you put any like put options if you heard that news? I mean, like, (laughs) that's that's some pretty strong intel there, Paul. Well, no, because you're an employee and, you know, employees that are reaching for their stockbroker's phone, uh, uh, phone number at times when they get inside information is an absolute prevalent disease across all of corporate America and the institutions that people here hold their noses to say have any kind of probity. And the FCC does. And yeah. so, okay, so aside from the fact that, no, what I was thinking about was, holy Beep. What are the impacts going to be on the business and notionally mm-hmm. the several thousand people I have pastoral care for? Well, what are yeah. you going to do? Well, we all know what the companies did, um, and you, you can see what happened. But if you were if you were either Bob Iger or Steve Burke who retired or took a break in the business, you time it. Steve Burke was the the CEO of NBC. Yeah, Universal, yeah, yeah. He retired roughly the, the same time as yeah. Bob. You know, and. Interesting. And, no, I, that's that's. That, I'm not a QAnon, or it's not a conspiracy theory. But what if you saw that the weather was set the way that it was set? The people that knew that were bluntly the CEOs of businesses operating in China. Okay, and mm. you could see what that. You, the minute it started to get rampant by about I think the second week of January in 20, 2020, wasn't it? I get my years mixed up. 
Yeah, in January 2020, you could reasonably have gotten what? sort of assessments. Uh, that yeah, this was uh, that we were already yeah. starting to think about well, people can't go in public spaces, which businesses right. is clearly going to affect box office. But at the same time, we were saying, thinking to ourselves, well, it's not going to, if people are stuck at home, they're going to watch a lot of TV. But, oh, we can't make any TV or we can't make any movies or we can't have your theme parks open. These were absolutely extraordinary things for these companies to weather. But look, with, with Bob uh, backish, I had never heard that guy's name. Just imagine, you know, like it's always interesting when you're in a business that's meant to be as ins- well, incestuous as the wrong. Sorry, which Bob guy? Backus. He said Bob Backus. You mean Bob Chapek? Sorry, Friday, easy okay. Freudian slip. I think you'd agree. Okay. <laughs> Bob Backish is the CEO of Viacom. Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah. sorry. We moved from an era of Jeffs to an era of Bobs. Yeah. Right. By the way, <laughs> Jeffs becoming Bobs is actually a hilarious way of putting it, Tommy. But let's say <laughs> I had not heard JPEG's name in the business that we call show. Okay. Ever. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. He was the Parks guy. Well, the, yeah. it, I heard his name for the first time when he very publicly fired a very, very popular employee of the Walt Disney Company. And this is what, this goes to the heart of, let's say, a thesis about what it is to be the CEO of Disney versus the CEO of almost any other company, which is, I always say this when I meet a Disney adult. I'm like, holy crap. Like, what is wrong with you? Well, no, 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 no. I, I, you know, oh, no, sorry. No, no. In yeah. many ways, I wish I could be a part of something that gave me such innocent pleasure for fucking no, no participants. Right. Like, <laughs> I wish I could get pleasure out of watching some of that stuff. But, but I, I, mean, and, and I wish I could get pleasure from going to a theme park. But I get it. But why I always say is, The best way it was described to me once, which I loved, is that being the CEO of Disney is like being the mayor of Disney. Like, you've got to walk around with a big smile on your face. And you literally, this is true, Eric, you have to go once a year to the theme park and wear the costume and walk around the costume in, like, the Goofy or, or, or Mickey Mouse uh, getup. It's really, you got to buy into the well, whole no, thing. You can't just be an MBA. So I, I hate the word cult because there's such negative things with, when you really think about the, when you say, oh, it's a bit culty, be careful the words you use. But so, you know, they kind of put the cult into pop culture, Disney. Okay, so, and and mm. the, you're right. That leadership position is of something when w- there are very few people, very few companies and brands that have kind of emotional and storytelling adherence to so many members of the public. Never mind shareholders. Because shareholders obviously look at the, you know, the things that everyone looks at when they look at a company. But then you've got to look at your fans and also disney has a very large workforce which is different to some of these businesses and that's because of the parks but also because they're a big legacy business so though it's not a democratic process though it's not a popularity contest though your main focus should be making money cutting costs whatever your job as a ceo is unfortunately at disney you've got to be michael eisner or bob Iger, which is if you i don't know bob I've sort of seen him in public and it's a bit like seeing big game in the wild, you know, it's like seeing a, no, genuinely, and he moves, he moves through the world in a way where he, he's the most like suave person Dude, he's literally looks like a movie yeah. star. I, 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 people talk about his age, but he literally looks like a young 50 year old. Okay. And I'm sure, sure what happened is that 
we'd all been hearing our stags out. Oh, they can't find a successor. Oh my God, they're going to poach Steve Burke. We all thought we were going to lose our bosses. Who's going to replace Bob? Who's going to replace Bob? Everyone obsesses about who's going to be the next CEO of Disney. And meanwhile, Bob Iceman, I'm the CEO of Disney. And no, why would I want to run for president? Look what happens if you run for president. No, I'm a really good CEO of Disney. And guess what? Everybody hates you if you're the yeah. president. If you're going to be the head of Disney, you're the head of the Magic Kingdom. What's better than that? You're head of the Magic Kingdom, and you're really good at it. And what's more, you not only won the Democratic, the popular vote, you won the, the Electoral College, and you're popular. Your approval rating's right. high. And suddenly people are saying, well, we don't want you in this job anymore. And I, I don't know how I would react. Well, I'm no Bob Iger, but I think that, yeah, it doesn't. To those of us observing it, it doesn't look like he had a succession plan. One of the things that's emerged sort of in the reporting has just been, you know, that Chapek took away the creatives' budgets and sort of centralized them, right? And I'm probably butchering this. And now I just saw a story the other day that was saying that McKinsey had given the recommendation, you know, the classic like, oh, clearly someone's trying to blame McKinsey for this. But I'm curious, like, do you, yeah, do you think the whole sort of creatives losing control of the budgeting issue was really you know, that, sort of important here or is this sort of all just like things people make up after the fact uh, to try and have reasons uh, for look, something? Holding budgets and the ability to say yes to green light of any project, i.e. put money in other people's pockets to go and make stuff, is the kind of core of so-called power in Hollywood. And any changes to the dynamic of how that money's spent cause ripples and you know what? It's funny because, again, when you've worked in the business a long time and how that decision-making process is approached is literally the subject of McKinsey-level navel-gazing at every organization on a kind of secular basis. Is how can we make less risky decisions, you know, or how do we turn this into a process? Or, you know, and, and then you, there's only so many ways you can look at the structure that says, we're being pitched something. Should we buy it or not? And the way you can you can model your way that a thousand ways. But yeah, no one likes having power taken away from them. But I don't think that. I don't think that's the underlying reason. You know, that's that's part of the popularity contest thing. Once you start to hear this is how it typically goes. The first bad news you hear about an executive never ever comes internally. It comes from one of a handful of senior agents or agencies where you start to hear the wobble around Scarlett Johansson. And then it becomes a kind of feeding frenzy around describing, oh, he's just not a creative person. Well, Bob Chapek is no more or less creative than the next CEO. If I didn't realize that a CEO of one of these companies was meant to be a particularly creative job. But that is, right. that is what the kind of industry holds on to as the reason why we are different and special and need to be treated so differently here in Hollywood is because we are creative. And that's just a fucking nonsense, excuse my French. It really is. Wait, really? You don't? Wait, wait, wait. I want to push yeah. back. It, I mean, the actual IP of like Star Wars, Marvel, like Pixar, like those stories are what, you know, the cult, exactly what you said earlier, the cult of Disney that fans love it so much. That's where they make all the money. And at the end of the day, having those great stories is what, what you're monetizing. Well, I think there's a version of yes to that. But I would take out at any cost as being one of the major problems, <laughs> major, major problems facing the business. And that's one of the major problems right. facing them. And as a CEO, 
probably more encouraging of the work of others who are, let's just say, the truly creative people that make a difference in the quality of outcomes of franchises like that or original pieces or whatever. Disney's doing an amazing job. Absent Bob Tapeg. If I look at, for instance, the output of Disney Plus as a consumer and the output of Hulu and its associated networks, that is a company in root health from a content point of view. Oh, everyone will like say, oh, this movie bombed or that movie bombed. Well, look around the business. That's just how it is. But in the main, their, co- right, their content strategy is beyond working with audiences. And you'll get a few people who are in the like real hardcore Disney fans that will moan about, oh, well, that's not very Disney or that. And I was like, no, in the main, their trajectory from a content point of view is successful. And they've got great leaders at a granular level of the content businesses. And this is something different. And you don't, I mean, again, if you're a creative in one of these organizations and you've got an uncreative or a non, someone who's proudly non-creative as a CEO, and there are those who are like, right. I ain't a fucking creative. I just do this, do that. Right. You know, yeah. there's right. lots of that. But the ones that actually listen and then empower you or listen to track record, that I don't know what he didn't green light or I don't know what decisions he made that pissed anyone off, but that doesn't seem to be a part of the problem at all in this. Yeah. Well, it does seem, I'm one of the things I've always been really impressed with, with Iger is, you know, they always say he's a creative CEO. Well, he doesn't write a script, you know. Uh, what he does, though, is make creatives feel that they are being yes. listened to and they're yes. talking to someone who understands yes. the art behind what yes. they do. And that seems very different than someone who is just so plainly not to criticize Chapek specifically because I don't know him and I yeah, don't exactly you know, spoke to him. But a suit, a suit, right? And that's that's what they that's the nightmare, right? That is that I'm this creative, you know, special bird, and I don't want to be seen talking to kind of a vulgar, you know, profit and loss guy. Well, you see, if you're in the consumer projects, the consumer products and the theme park business, even though the Magic Kingdom, you know, it has a very specific, uh, you know, the theme parks at Disney have a very specific kind of internal resonance. You are ultimately the guy responsible for the widgets of the company. It's like the language of units, you know, gate, the the way that the theme parks behave very different to all the other bits of the businesses in a company like that. And the consumer products division relies entirely on scraps from the table of the core creative businesses to be successful. Wouldn't matter what you're merchandising, no hit, no t-shirt, right? So to come from that into that, I think that has its challenges optically and in terms of pure capability, because yes, you'd be absent some of the bedside manner that someone like Bob has honed over many decades. I'm sure he wasn't always perfect at it, you know, like me, young, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think he understood that being viewed as someone with taste and an artist-friendly person is an important part of the leadership role at Disney. And it might not be so at others, but it definitely is at Disney. Right. And this is the thing that that, that kind of, you know, I, I feel for, for Chapek almost, because, you know, he goes out there and says, oh, by the way, Disney Plus is going to lose one and a half billion dollars. And every analyst comes back and says, like, we are ending your career. And meanwhile, Reed Hastings and Netflix have been, like, losing $3 billion a year, and they've been celebrated for it. There were parades in the streets of New York and, and Silicon Valley for how much money there they was, were losing. I remember part of being a CEO. Yeah, so go ahead. You have, to read the mo- you have to read the moment. You know, it, it was grow, 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 and now it's profitability, and that's just sort of how things are. You know, you're supposed to execute towards the strategy the market wants at the moment, and, you know, the market wants it for for reasonable reasons, you know, about sort of, I don't know, is that that crazy? Well, what I'm saying is, I'm a, when there are people who are in businesses that make kind of pronouncements, 
like I remember like, I had an uncle who just was a very successful investment guy for people. He never seemed to end up with any money himself. But he told me about when I was a little boy caddying for him. He said, oh, one word, asbestos. I'm like, what? Just, he goes, asbestos is going to change the wealth of nations. And I'm like, whoa. And then all you re I read about growing up was like this stuff, asbestos, and it was killing loads of people and cancer and millions and billions and billions and millions of settlements and all of this stuff. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to, when someone makes a kind of definitive Armageddon statement about something, I'm going to pay attention every time, even if I do my own research and dismiss it. But if someone I know and trust says something that sounds, oof, I should pay attention. I'm going to be in the business of ever being more curious about finding out what's going on. And someone very well regarded in our business has made a lot of money and been very successful in it, said, what is happening right now? And I think he said it in the middle of 2019, will be looked at retrospectively as the greatest destruction of value ever experienced by our business sector. And right. the will be paying the cost of it for a decade, that it, it is going to be very, very hard on the rank and file of these companies. And when I said value destruction, what do you mean? I was like, look, everyone is chasing Netflix. And in doing so, all that they are doing is massively ramping up the cost of content. And I mean, by hundreds of percent in many cases, what a show should, could, and actually cost. And you can see this by looking at international arbitrage and say, well, how much does an hour of drama cost, fully-fledged drama cost in, I don't know, making it up, Copenhagen, Denmark. Why? Isn't Copenhagen like one of the most expensive places on the planet? Like, isn't the cost of living incredibly right. high? Aren't we always hearing Copenhagen's expensive? Well, how the F can they make a drama for 700,000 Danish crowns or euros and the same production values or optical production values, net of some obviously identifiable above the line things, is 7 million now in Hollywood. Well, yeah, someone's being taken for a ride. Not quite sure who it is yet, but in that lies the truth of what's happening now, which is, yeah, you know what? Zazef comes in, amazing, absolutely, no one expecting uh, one. This is David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Warner Discovery. Brothers Discovery caught everyone napping with whatever that transaction was. I can tell you there were people that were just like, holy moly. And then you look at the methodology, which is how have they done this huge construct? And I went, I look at the stock price. I'm just picking up my phone because I'm not like, I'm not going to pretend I know the stock price off the top of my head by secretly Googling it. But here is... You could, I, of course, keep these media stocks quite close to hand. Okay, so here's the Warner Brothers Discovery share prices at $11.40. And there is a time six months ago when it was $79 a share. Okay, yeah, the stock market yeah. cap of the absolute largest catalog of moving pictures on the planet is $27.69 billion, which if you add that enormous pile of debt, probably puts the cost of the whole shebang still less than the purchase price of Sky or the purchase price of 20th uh, going back a time, okay? So what's happened? Just what the hell has happened to all of that value that was in a company that someone thought was 79 bucks less than six months ago? And people are talking about 
FTX. Right, look at your own graph, Sunshine. What's going on right. there? And why are more difficult? This, 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 you're talking about Time Warner, yeah. right? Yeah, no, talking about... So, Tom. So, so Time Warner, yeah, I can yeah. do a quick one here. So, yeah. so Time Warner, uh, you know, was I mean, sold to AT&T. Not, right, right, right. So basically, a couple of years ago, Time Warner was like in this auction sale. They just wanted to process. They just wanted to sell themselves. It's not Time Warner. It was called Warner Brothers because time had been spun off. But anyway, no, no, it was called Time Warner. Anyway, they, they were sold to AT&T in one of the most disastrous deals that has ever t- happened in the media industry where AT&T had no idea what to do with this asset. They brought that in... That was the, last cycle, right? I mean, that was the last cycle. Right. So AT&T offloads this asset in the middle of 2021 to this merger that happened with Discovery, which was overseen, uh, it was the CEO of that is David Zaslav, who is kind of the king of reality television. And, who was being positioned you know, as like a genius when this happened, right? Well, he he was on top. I mean, you know, he, right. he was able to figure out a way in which he was the last media mogul out there. And then it turns right. out that he gets this job and he has to deal, and Paul, you can talk about this, mm-hmm. I'm sure, with a lot of knowledge, like a new entity that had a huge amount of debt that had a very unclear streaming strategy at this point. And was coming up against... Uh, that's a, a, HBO Max. Yeah. And like Paul was saying, it's the, the largest catalog of movies in the world. It's an incredibly interesting property, but it's also coming against this time. Not just movies, the value huge television catalog and huge television production capacity. And I mean, in any given year, several of your favorite shows are made by WB, but Warner Brothers, whether it's for their own services or others, they're a powerhouse, absolute powerhouse in physical production. Yeah, yeah. So when it comes to catalog and ability to produce content, unmatched. And yet now they're saddled with this, you know, huge amount of debt and and a, and a stock market that just doesn't seem to know what to do with media. You think properties. the stock market's just wrong, or what? I know you were sort of saying you don't totally know the answer to what's going on here, but what do you make of how low the value is for Warner Brothers? Well, or Time Warner. Uh, no. I think there's a no, Warner Brothers Discovery. Warner Brothers Discovery. Oh, I mean, no one yeah. No, names. I know, right? So yeah. it's like it's slightly dizzying to keep up with who owns what, where, why, and how. And also, like your absolute transparent understanding of which businesses any one of these contracts actually owns and operates. Like the way you talk about you know, even Hulu is anomaly or. What's Discovery coming together with HBO Max really look like? Who's doing what? What is there anything they can divest so that they can streamline? What are they looking at? And time and time again, you see the, the kind of recourse. And when you've got yourself into a spot of financial bother, which I think that graph represents, and by the way, they're not alone with a graph like that. Although I think it's interesting when you look at Netflix over the last six months, it's going in the exact opposite direction, you know, the cut programming or cut creativity, cut the product, the R&D, and cut the workforce rather than take a really hard look at the businesses and or, oh, we'll topple, for the sake of optics, we'll topple a few tall business leaders with big reputations. You know, like you saw that when at Warner's in preparation, they got rid of people that, dozens of people that have been working there for like 20, 25, 30 years. And by the way, you can see if you're like on LinkedIn on the, like, which you shouldn't really be on for more than like a second a day, but that <laughs> you can see after 25 years at the same company, it's off to pastures new, like frightfully chipper, heartbroken statements by people that have just been tossed out in the street as a result of things they don't understand. Like, why did someone borrow $50 billion to buy us? 
aren't we the best thing on the planet? Like, we've all been working here on massive hits for years, and now this is falling down around our ears. And I think there's a lot of people that feel that way. When you talked about morale and what's it feel like in the industry, there's kind of like, aren't our bosses kind of letting us down a bit here? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've found fascinating from when I covered the industry was that there's a certain type of job that used to be extremely prestigious in the industry that is basically disappearing. Mm -hmm. And I think of like programmers as one of them. I mean, that used to be almost the top of the heap, right? If you were the guy who was sitting there in front of the big cork board and can figure out, you know, which TV show was going on which night, that was a really fucking important job. And people would, would strive in their careers to get to that level. And now it's it's basically like a dodo bird. I mean, people just don't... Well, that bit of the business... Know, look, look I, change is happening in the business the whole time. I mean, again, I'm, the way I'm telling a story about starting TV distribution in the pre-broadband era is the first time you saw MP3, you could have drawn the conclusion that traditional television was dead, okay? Remind <laughs> Like the first time you're like, oh my gosh, you can get video over the same thing. I just got an email, okay? But... Content, storytelling, publishing, those businesses are constants. The way that it happens and the way that businesses make money, that's been subject to ever, you know, enormous amounts of change. So I'm philosophical. I'm, I don't lose too much sleep about structural change in the business, but the undeniable chaos agent was, you know, when you talk about, I'm not a Hollywood historian, I don't know much, but I kind of love the stories of like how Century City happened. Oh, the Japanese arrived in the 80s, right? Before the Kobe earthquake, right? And had a load of money and hit Hollywood. And everyone was like, party, party, new offices, <laughs> amazing movies that were greenlit that would never get made now. And it kind of, you know, a bonanza of new fresh cash into certain parts of the business, right? I wasn't around then. I won't pretend I was working in the business. But the arrival of tech, whatever Netflix and Amazon and just, and, and Apple to an extent, whatever the, the sort of arrival of major new, highly resourced eminences in Hollywood is, that triggers a number of responses. One of which is, and they may deny it, but a whole lot of people go, yummy, yummy, fresh blood. Some new suckers have arrived in town. Let's milk it for all it's worth. And there'll be a gold rush of sorts. And at the end of the day, it's all right. We own the pigs and shovels anyway. So it's the people that own right. the pigs and shovels. You've heard all of this before. But that it genuinely feels right. like we are heading for some sort of course correction around the cost of everything. How many employees probably one more major merger away from the landscape making sense. I mean, people talk about Apple buying Disney and everyone always says about Apple, well, they could buy absolutely anything they wanted on any day, sure. right? But are you betting on that or? I'm not sure I would bet on it. Uh, not in the immediate short term, because I think that that really will start head spinning about what really is going on behind closed doors. And, and I think that even though neither of those companies really owns any competing assets, I think with a Department of Justice, I only say this by having had a side row seat to seeing what getting a consent decree looks like or what a big merger, what it throws up uh, at the moment. Well, let's just say in a Democratic Department of Justice are no friends of companies getting bigger. Right. And so I don't, I'm not necessarily certain that Apple plus Disney passes the, isn't that just a, monstrous thing yeah test 
Right. It's huge. And America. And yeah. now everybody's mad at, you know, Apple was fighting with Elon for a second. Uh, there, there was a flash of Apple is, you know, the biggest company in the world. Uh, maybe we should worry about it more for antitrust and not just pick on Facebook all the time. Well, so, I think, yeah. yeah. And that's certainly going on in Europe harder. already, you know, and, and Europe tends to be upstream of, of the U.S. when it comes to regulation. I think that's true. Uh, upstream to an extent, but in terms of its history with corporations, America has an amazing, amazing history of breaking up large companies. Over and over again, we've seen it happen. And, the, and, and historically, I'm not certain with that, but I would think that there would be some of these companies not too big to fail, big enough to fail is really what it looks like. Yeah. Before we turn the yeah. conversation, what streamer relative to its position now are you most optimistic about? So I, I obviously don't count Disney out on sheer subscriber numbers and brand value. And I think they'll figure out how to make money and do that right. Okay. I've been incredibly impressed and encouraged with the progress that Amazon's made. And I'll say mm -hmm. that mainly in terms of just you guys who are in the tech business. When Prime first started, it, like, it really felt like a service that wasn't run by people in the entertainment industry. And I mean that from a kind of interface point of view, even like finding shows or everything felt like a little bit thrown together at Amazon, which was strange because it's such a massively well-resourced company. But I give huge credit to how the business has evolved and also what contents are emanating from that. So um, Amazon's going to be there or thereabouts in this game. They've got great executives and people that know what they're doing over there. Likewise, and when I just go by my own habits, I'd found myself watching Amazon more and more. I was surprised. And a lot right. of people have said that to me. Likewise, Hulu. So when people say, would you cancel any of them? I'm like, well, no, business reasons. I'm going to keep them all going. But where am I going every day? Every day we're on Hulu. Every day we're on Disney Plus because of the kids. And every day we're probably mm -hmm. on Amazon because of buying stuff, but at the same time as like finding stuff. Peacock is certainly not on this list. I'm well, sorry, HBO Peacock, is by the way, you can get who are Peacock. You, who are you more skeptical of? No, Peacock's an incredible value for money play. And I actually see areas of usage where they're really growing. Like, for instance, they have got like quite a few successful reality shows on there. I'm sure they're getting great viewership for like those housewives and things like that. And then there's something undeniable. So there was a movie that I would never go to see in a the movie theater. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm a Vikings fan. Okay. So they'd done a movie called Northman at Focus Features. And to get me to mm -hmm. go to the movie theater to see Northman would be absolutely impossible. But almost day and day, it was on Peacock. And I pay 99 cents a month for Peacock. I'm on a discounted yeah. deal. Yeah. Okay. So I'm like, 99 cents. Oh, they've got Northman. Fucking hell. Go, go into Northman. And it says, oh, I'm going to have to watch some ads. And I'm thinking, well, in the movie theater, I'm sort of willingly watch like 15 pre-rolls, right? You'd be watching the trailers plus some weird local ad for the food court or whatever. And they roll, yeah. it says two ads are going to roll. One of which is a promo for the movie I'm about to watch. And the other, Weird. the other, Not a great well, ad. the other was yeah. actually a remarkably pertinent piece of locally served advertising. And I thought, well, that's great. I've mm -hmm. had to watch two pieces of content. And then I've got an absolute free run at a brand new movie for what effectively is less than no money. And so like, I don't know where that fits into their desire to make money, but for the consumer, <laughs> I'm literally... Sure. I'm, for me... Good deal. For, for me, good deal. I did want to ask, and we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but you know, we did talk about, you know, you did kind of in your trajectory of your career, rise to the top uh, of NBC. And then 
you know, rather publicly uh, end up through either a reorg or a, a pretty scathing article yeah. written about your leadership, end up getting end up getting pushed out. And, you know, just as uh, to very quickly kind of explain the article, you know, the allegations in it was that as the leader of, of this company, you know, of, of NBC, you know, you had created a, a work environment that many anonymous sources described as toxic. Yeah. I think some people spoke on the record, like Sharon Osbourne, but she didn't work there. <laughs> well, every, Look, every, I'm not going to undermine the article too much. Tom can, def- but it's like be- being from totally outside of it. It's like every bad word you could be. You're like sexist and I don't know everything. But then it's sort of like massage, but it's like, but then it's like celebrities being like, he said, I'd never work in this business again if I didn't comply with what the studio wanted, which is like, isn't that what studios I've, tell I have you? literally anyway, never but... uttered those words like, you'll never work in this business again. I was like, but beware of anyone that thinks they have the power to say that. And let's look at what's going on in the business right now, which is talent doesn't really need any of these companies to be talent anymore. That's really what the big evolution is. So look, yeah. there's hindsight. And there's accountability, and then there's a set feelings that you could sit in about, well, that wasn't fair. Look what happened to me. And you know what? Um, it was such a weird moment, just in general. So if you wanted to just... In the uh, culture. In the culture. And I think we're still a little bit in that weird moment, but I think that the fog is lifting to an extent where, you know, it's, now I want to be so sort of thoughtful because I don't want to be glib about what if if people's feelings were hurt at any point in conversations with me, that is undeniably something that could happen. And that's because mm-hmm. um, I express myself incredibly clearly, transparently, and in a very opinionated way, in a way that is occasionally polarizing anyway. Then you add a layer to that, which is I would say you need to meet Elizabeth Talegdi, an 87-year-old woman from the north of England who swears more than me. Like, literally, she's got a foul amount. <laughs> but you're like, and it's that kind of, you try and not take permission. It's like, no, there are certain words that, that surfaced in terms of like schoolboy humor, um, puerile, uh, or whatever, you know, like things you don't really want to hear necessarily about yourself. Which is a modicum of truth in terms of the perception that you communicate a certain way. You should be a bit more careful about that in corporate America. And at the same time, what I would say to anyone that took offense who felt like they were a junior employee or someone that I was like, was I wielding excess power in some sort of toxic environment? No, I talk to my bosses precisely the way that I would talk to you. And you can ask them. I remember Mm -hmm. someone coming up and saying, did you just tell the CEO of this company that he was a P? Word, I'm not even going to say it because apparently I'll be offending someone by saying it, even though I use the far stronger word uh, normally to use that. Mm-hmm. And I said, No, 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 I didn't call him a P word, I said he was acting like a P word. Okay, and so whatever that you know, ha ha ha, Paul, you've got to use another swear word. And the people would come up to me and say, right. You should watch your language, and I understand that, but it was more yeah. probably um, a manifestation of a moment. Whereas, but I understand you accused of racism, which is anyone could accuse anyone of any ism. I think that, and then when you go, what is the defense mechanism for being called a racist? If you're not, well, if you could stand on your track record of who you've lifted up in the business and, oh, all of my friends, this or whatever. But funnily enough, one of the most overwhelming areas of support when I had when this went down was a lot of incredibly nice notes from people who would have been subject to these so-called isms who said they'd never had any of that experience. And they were sorry if others had, but their experience was completely different. 
And you're right. It was like, my, I remember my lawyer at the time said, well, this article basically says everything apart from, oh, oh, no, you are responsible for the Kennedy assassination. Oh, sorry, they've added that <laughs> right now. And, you know, you question your own sanity. And then when I say the moment was, you get accused of being a racist and for making a phone. Were you surprised? Were you surprised to hear these so, allegations? So what I would say is that when journalists, and you both are members of the profession, start, I've heard about, for months, someone's trying to do a hit job on you. And what you've got right. is a few sort of like slightly off-color remarks I'm alleged to have made. And I said, and trust me, I will remember the context and the reasons for saying it probably clearer than most. But anyway, it was a moment because at the time, uh, George Floyd had been, you know, murdered in public or however you perceive that. And that all the kind of, mm -hmm. you know, half the world turned their Instagram page black and were then told, you can't do that. That's not good either. Like people didn't know what to do in response to this moment. As you see it, like, what's the story of like what motivated it? It's like the reporters looking to fit the narrative. It's like employees are looking to sort of be part of a solution. And, or it's like you had like opponents within a company who are using this moment to like, to go after you. Oh my gosh, you're so sweet. Like, 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 and then, by the way, to, like I say, it's such a sort of weird bubble that I and my family were in. So, right. you know, in terms of like the amount of sleepless nights thinking about, oh, what would I have done differently? Oh, would I have spoken to this person? Would I have been polite to that incredibly important person that was behaving utterly appallingly towards all of the people around them? And it becomes my job as the right. boss of this company to sanction people who don't feel they should be sanctioned. And what do they do right. when they're sanctioned by someone that they don't want to be sanctioned by? Whether it's Sharon Osborne, who misremembered this is, I, I apparently took a woman to a business meeting with Sharon Osborne, which anyone that knows the person, imagine what, going to a business meeting at Soho House, or no, it wasn't. We were going for a drink with Sharon Osborne, and the lady I took is my wife. But the article says mm -hmm. I took some young, inappropriately young girl to a meeting. And, and then they were like, oh, no, 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 we're still going to leave that in. I was like, well, how do you think my wife's going to feel about it? And her so you had told the Hollywood Reporter that the woman that Sharon Osbourne brought up as like some floozy that you brought to the bar was in fact your and, wife. And if not and, my and wife, my fiancé. Like the, the entire time I knew right. Sharon Osbourne, I was either with or engaged to my current spouse, my wife, not my current wife. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and so you're yeah. like, that's slightly wounding. And then there was this like, by association, the toxicity in the article was like, they don't want to mention Trump this and Trump that. Like, why? Because he was on The Apprentice and what? I was his boss at the BBC, out there at NBC. So there was a lot of sort of weird stuff in there. But the intention to bring me down had been clearly signaled by the journalists to our press department months before the article came out. And we're working on this. Why? We've been what? Told by who? Former yeah. employees, yeah, largely former, but also some people there that don't really like him and, you know, he said the wrong thing. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I can tell you what, there's no circumstances under which I, if I were the boss of our company, wouldn't have given me air cover in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it was frankly all just a lot of twaddle, some of which I take huge responsibility for because I can't help not. Why? Because I was in a very highly paid job <laughs> with a trajectory that suggested I might be getting another highly paid job anytime soon. And suddenly I'm an independent mm -hmm. producer doing what many other people have to do when a career comes to an end. That is not a choice. Mm -hmm. It's not something you do. And then you have to be analytical about why it happened. And you know what? I am someone that expresses my opinions clearly. 
And you know what, with hindsight, here's what I would say. Much as I would love to have kept that job and I think I could be making a contribution at that company, things happen for a reason. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to work there now. Right? Okay, so I'm just seeing what's going on. Like, so, so in many ways, I got out and I'm able to start over and do some interesting things and you know, carry on making shows. Because for me, I'm much more focused on the consumer that sits behind all of these platforms and these corporate stories and stuff like that. So I'm lucky enough to have worked on shows or been involved with creativity where completely random people come up to, or, you know, in a conversation. So I freaking love American Ninja Warrior. It changed my kid's life or love The Voice or what have you done lately? You know, I've been lucky and I get to work on something. In terms of like rebirth in your career yeah. or whatever, I mean, we talked about the cancel. We didn't use the word cancel, but I'll, I'll use like I the think canceling. I used it. Yeah. Sort of, how much did you feel like like your peers or just like the social environment like canceled? Not, you? Not, how, not, how, has not, it been no. hard to work with people, so, or so, do, was there sort of a testing period where people were like, "I don't know, is he too hot to touch?" Or who, what's how's that who, process play who out? Who knows really what people say about you behind your back? I think I learned that. Right. <laughs> okay. But my experience in just pure facing the business is most people that need to know me, know me and know the truth. In one form or another, they have a, like, your reaction, Eric, is a complete outsider, um, has been, I would say, in the case of someone who's a complete insider, depending on where they sort of fall out on the kind of just the pure personal taste, it's all right, do you like that person, yes or no, which right. is a completely legitimate right. binary answer. Most people that I've encountered are like, holy shit, what happened to you here is just kind of extraordinary. <laughs> oh my God, right. if it can happen to you bluntly, it's not that it could happen to anybody, but I think everyone knew the truth about you. They hired you, you were exactly the same on day one, right. and maybe the world and the organization changed, but we know the truth about you, Paul. We know what your passions are, and we know we can rely on you. And on the personal level, it's like, no, I've had... Right when it was happening, I had, in many ways, part of it was like, wonderful. But what was I have kept every, this is the people, for a start, people, when your NBC email stops working and your cell phone doesn't work anymore, there's a period in which people are trying to reach you that you had no clue about. Right. And it takes months for what were, in the main, extraordinary good wishes. And loads and loads of messages of kind of support and can't wait to see what you do next and all of that. And on a yeah. social level, have I felt occasionally like in a restaurant in West Hollywood, a couple of eyes following me out of the room and maybe someone go, oh, isn't that Paul Tabegdi or something? And of course, I would leap to the conclusions of, do they think I'm an ism, an ist? Am, am I, am I going to be off to yeah. Mar-a-Lago with Nick Fuentes and Donald Trump? Or like, <laughs> what's my story? Because someone's certainly going to, you know, whatever. And the, and the, the right. answer is, you just like, you keep on keeping on and you work with the people. It's not about pushing against open doors, but you work with the people that just sort of know the truth. And so far, so right. good. People, I haven't had anyone say, I'm not taking a meeting with you because of what happened to you. But when right. meeting new people, let's just say someone that hasn't had any kind of creative relationship with me, as you can imagine, when you... They Google. They Google. They Google. Yeah, they, the article the articles comes up. come up or versions of it or the way it yeah. was reported like in India or whatever. Like the, the internet's a funny thing mm-hmm. and, you know, it's the kind of graffiti you can't take a sponge to. Right. However, you can talk to people and you can be transparent and you can exhibit the truth. as it, And it's not my truth. 
their truth, our truth. It's like, this is what happened to me. These are the bits that I think I was in control of. And, you know, these are the lessons I've learned. I certainly won't be using the C word in meetings much in America, but back in England, it seems fine down the pub. And I've never used it in isolation from qualifying it. And it's not a misogyny still if you're using it about a man, I guess. I don't know. But I've certainly learned mm-hmm. to, you have to be accountable for your words and actions. And you had to be 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, and five years in the future. The problem right. yeah. is bluntly the culture of how these things are reported and how the news is disseminated. And, you know, I could, I'm a big boy. This is my last question on this is, I mean, did you, I just wonder this as a reporter, you know, because you do have a situation where sources come to you, they are all saying a thing, you get enough to create a narrative, you come to the company, you tell them this is what we're hearing. I mean, did you feel that you were given a fair hearing by the reporters in this? I haven't spoken to either of them. I remember my last interactions with both of them, and I know precisely why they don't like me. (laughs) And by the way, look. I could go into elaborate details about things that motivate why someone working for the Hollywood Reporter thinks it's their job to do that. Okay, good question. But there's a very good reason why anyone that owns those businesses is trying to shed them as fast as they can and end up being bounced around from pillar to post because it's, 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 you know, it's funny, at the BBC, which is an organization really founded on the sweat of journalism, and before it was, let's just say, at a time when it wasn't an honorable profession, it was made an honorable profession by people that put themselves in harm's way in war zones, harm's way in investigations, harm's way in terms of the checks and balances of power and politicians. And journalism was an honorable profession and the search for the truth was important and balanced, not balanced for the sake of it, not he said, she said, and it's all, you know, everyone gets a view, but actually looking for the truth is quite an important thing. Now, when Mm -hmm. you or a subject of one of these, oh, there's lots of phone calls being made to random people about you. And you get the first 20 phone calls from someone that says, hey, I'm not being funny, but I've just had this journalist asking really weird questions about you, Paul, mainly about your sexual habits and who you slept with. And, oh, my God. And is there any dirt mm. on you that they don't already have? When you're in litigation through your company and you hear that private investigators have been hired and that they're calling parents at your kid's school and stuff like that, I'm like, this is a bit rich because I can understand the pursuit of bad people by law enforcement in any business all the time. I can understand the need for companies to change and for cultures to evolve. Um, But I don't understand how a journalist's job involves calling people. And the minute someone says, hang on a minute, that isn't my experience at all. In fact, dot, 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 the, the phone is literally hung up, hung up. I had five people tell me that one of the journalists just hung up on them in the middle of what they would describe as not a defense of Paul, but no, no, that wasn't my experience. Well, thanks. Goodbye. Thanks. Goodbye. Or bloop, bloop, bloop. And so it doesn't feel like that's journalism. Is what I would right, say. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I, I, I can under, yeah. I mean, why it happens as a reporter, you start off, you're like, you're looking for like a recurring theme. Yeah. I think one of the problems in these cancel culture articles is like the kitchen sink ones where it's just sort of like, oh, they seem to be presented as bad in every sort of issue. It's one thing if it's you're like, oh, there's a specific yeah. problem where like the whole story is built around, you know, I don't know, something specific. Well, let's just say uh, uh, na- yeah. 911 has never been called. Okay. And uh, neither is. <laughs> and and, and yeah. by the way, like, like I say, 
you live through it, you kind of metabolize the, you know, funnily enough, that toxic word that, you know, it's an interesting one because you definitely know when you've come into contact with a toxic environment, okay? Like, you know it, you know it, you feel it. And things normally unravel quite quickly around that kind of toxicity. And the journalist's thesis about me, it's very strange, started years ago. Years ago. And I just, I've I pinpointed it to a very specific personal interaction. That's all I can say. That things got quite personal, it seems, with those two people. And I don't know a clue why. And uh, that once you've got a thesis, no one likes to be told. If you imagine, I've got this amazing thesis, and this is the thesis, and this is, I'm going to back it up. Well, your thesis is wrong. No, it isn't. I've been working on this thesis for 10 years. What is wrong? Okay, well, no, I'm going to publish it anyway. Well, have at it. And, you know, in the, what was right or wrong, you know, I'm through it. Uh, My family's through it. It was hard for a bit. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It was a bubble I was in, and it's three years. I can't believe I'm saying it's nearly three years on now. I mean, for heaven's sake, more important things in the world to worry about. Yeah. Well, look, I I mean, we appreciate you you talking about it. I know it isn't easy. Um, But last thing, Paul, just in terms of, you know, your time atop NBC, you got to deal with, I'm sure, a lot of celebrities and interesting interactions. (laughs) Um, Any good Trump stories? I mean, you were his (laughs) boss for a couple of years. What can you tell me about? the time he was the head of The Apprentice and what it was like overseeing the man who would be king. Oh, goodness gracious me. Well, you know what? It was just bizarre at times is the only way I can put it. And you know what? I feel like for the sake of people that are being so discreet about what's alleged or isn't alleged to have happened on the set of that show, I never witnessed anything. And I've had, I had hundreds of conversations. He used to call me every Monday morning after the show went out. I've seen the celebrity apprentice said, Trump, every Monday morning after the show went out to read me the ratings analysis that, that of very, oh that my God. he was reading from a fax that I, someone in my office or someone at our organization had sent me. Okay. But so I'm surprised he didn't print it out and write it in Sharpie. I thought that was his style usually, right? With the, uh, well, yeah. Oh, by the way, we used to get loads of faxes with his handwriting on. We had to keep a fax machine in the office because he was the last person faxing, last man faxing. He didn't have a computer right. on his desk. It's not sending. We used to get emails from Rona and his assistant and stuff like that. But, you know, I want to, I want to kind of, I must give you a tip there having answered that question. But honestly, I never saw him do anything that fell into the category of, uh, the sort of, let's say the nonsense that he embarked on with a political career. Mm-hmm. But, for journalists, I thought this was interesting, and I think it's really interesting in the context of like Elon and Twitter, that there was this moment, and it was sometime in the Obama presidency when he started going on about the birth of stuff. Sure. And Obama was, came into office literally six, the inauguration was like a few months after, a couple of months after I joined NBC, it was like a week after the Golden Globes or something. And... I think that he's, he'd embarked on this birth certificate bullshit a bit earlier in the kind of process. And I said, I remember talking to him because I don't know whether it was that we had a particularly African-American cast on that season of The Apprentice or what. I, I don't even know what the reasons, but the reasons were saying this shit is racist, Donald. Like implying, mm-hmm. you know, any post-Central European, like I'm half Hungarian, but anyone that is challenged to produce pieces of paper to prove who they are. It creates kind of visceral relationship with, you know, like, no, we don't have to prove who we are. 
And you do. You told him that. And you, you doing this to Obama is racist. And I was like, oh, we're calling Donald Trump racist. And it's like, or it's perceived as racist. Somehow I would have qualified it possibly. And he goes, yeah, but every time I tweet about it, Twitter was new to him. I get another 10,000 followers. He goes, you know, I've got more followers than the New York Times has circulation. He goes, when I tweet, more people see it than read the New York Times. He hated the New York Times. So he was like going on and on about the New York Times. I'm bigger than the New York Times. And he made this visceral connection between popularity and strong opinion in this specific space where he's like, well, I don't care. People will listen to my tweets on oil prices. People will tweet, listen to my tweets. Right. And what was most extraordinary was I was just assuming that. We haven't got a load of research. And weirdly, his, we could see his popularity was, in fact, shunting up with every negative Obama tweet. And it was, it was I'd say, four years after, I feel like it was, you know, I don't know what, I couldn't date stamp it. But it just was very interesting to me that he had made the connection between the influence of social media and his ability to reach people. And so anyway, like, yeah. Was it bad for the show or good for the, like he was getting more popular, but his, for advertisers, he was becoming more negative or he was still doing the show when he was doing the birther stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was, he was. And it was just like, oh God. And were you calling him because it's sort of gotten escalated or you're just 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 like, I think it's just the wrong thing to be saying, you know, and please don't do it. Like, I just think it reflects badly. And by the way, I think it was that during a season in which, I'm forgetting who was on it, but I feel like it's like no one wants to be the people that are saying hell yeah to your tweets. You should be very careful about those people. But um, you know what? Um, He was what I would say is eccentric, irascible, not always on time. Took quite a long time to do fairly simple things, but I never (laughs) saw him do. Anything that fell into the categories of that which he's latterly kind of celebrated for. And I think that that was like, everyone was like, trust me, he said the, this word, that word, this word. You don't think we would have heard if he'd have used that word on set. Interesting. And of course, we don't think we wouldn't have sanctioned even Donald Trump for stuff. The main reason the show went away um, was the ratings were, it, the, t- the format had tired itself out. And it was brought back with the celebrity version by Silverman, Ben Silverman, as a kind of Hail Mary for the format. And it worked and it gave it a whole other additional life. And it was reordered during a strike year. And reality programming has this funny ability where they're like, well, we need another hour. So they expanded the one hour episodes, two hour episodes, and they were able to do that and carry on. So it was always a construct, the apprentice that kind of worked until it didn't. And yeah, but. I mean, one day for a cocktail and off the record, it's not, it's not like the specifics of like the weirdness of just what occasionally would come down the pipe with like, who's Milan, who's Ivanka friends with? Who's in the room? Why am I sitting in this like video village <laughs> with like, say like, have they known these people? And then, you know, one day, and I think it needs to be like 25 years in the future, that what happened when he came down that escalator and said that, you know, Mexico sends us their worst, sort of. Sure, their worst, their rapists. That, that was some of that good was people. a pretty turbulent seventy-two hours of my life, I have to say, which culminated in like literally, I don't know if I'm a fired him 
So like, there's not many people that have done that with Donald. And it was extremely, wow, extremely huh. difficult. And then funnily enough, I didn't, I was pretty, once you've fired someone, your relationship with them changes forever, doesn't it? And right. the reasons that we fired him. And then let's just say people above me in the industry still thought it was really important that the company I worked for maintained a kind of cordial collaborative relationship with Trump as he actually moved from running joke to actually running. Does that make sense? And I also remember walking upstairs after seeing he announced his run for the presidency and literally there wasn't a person that knew Trump well at our company who said his odds are winning better than 50-50. In fact, once he's on the ticket, once he's running, it's pretty unstoppable. He knows the game. He really does know how he, we, hmm. he had been handpicked to train for a soundbite. You know, once you've worked on a reality show, you can see, and once you've learned the relationship between words and reaction to words, which he'd kind of learned as a public figure on a TV show, it was pretty likely he was going to win. I remember Rachel Maddow coming to a retreat and she was like, guys, if he's running, it's, based on statistics alone, it's better than 50-50, he wins. And I was like, 50-50 right. plus the Trump factor, certainly as a one-term president, he's going to win it. Uh, so Lord help mm. us, we're all still still talking about him. And I think he's still planning on trying to disrupt this next election cycle with whether he runs and pulls or gets arrested. I don't know what happens next. It's right. a shit show. Yeah, the unending shit show. Fascinating. Well, yeah, fast. It was yeah. fascinating. Well, thank you for coming on. I feel like I... There was so much I didn't know we would cover. Well, uh, look, guys, you know, so it's been a joy. I really enjoyed look, it. As you say, a podcast and talking to this, if this is a podcast, this is like having a Zoom with two people. I should be probably extremely careful about what I say to, but <laughs> thank you for making me comfortable enough to share a bit. And by the way, Tom, I know you were uncomfortable about asking what happened to me. Right, which was the point yeah. of bringing you on, of course, to talk to talk more about that. But, yeah. you know, I do appreciate you going into yeah. it and, you know, speaking to it as as best you're able to, because I think it's, you know, I I guess what I always like to do, because this show, we sort of focus on the journalist view of the stories that we're covering yeah. and the industries that we cover. And, you know, both Eric and I have written very hard pieces about executives, and I always find it valuable to talk to people who've been on the other side of a news cycle. Yeah. I just think we don't get a lot of sense of that typically. And, you know, it is a legitimate side to every story that journalists are sometimes ignorant. To well, look, I think that it's really, you guys are part of a really important profession. It's never been more important. And I think that it's going through an evolution in terms of the partnership between whoever pays a paycheck for a journalist and the distribution method is that right. Twitter made journalists quite famous individuals at time or social media meant that you could have your own personal journalist brand. And it became something that everyone was pursuing, which is, look, it's, it's great to be successful, have a following, make money doing a job. But if your job is, I hate to use this word, quite important, which the search for the truth and is, then I think that mm -hmm. we have yet to kind of re-level set what that job description is in the new world of you don't work for a newspaper publisher or proprietor. Your editor might not, you may never see the, you know, like whatever it is. There's a kind of new world of how-to my experience wasn't great, but I would say in the main, when I talk to journalists and when I meet them around the place, not just in our business, it's still great at their jobs, looking for interesting stories. They're storytellers like us. And uh, right. I, I've enjoyed my relationship with the press in the main. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this, Paul. We really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Icon Sally. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.